Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Since the 1950s, the sounds of Jamaican reggae have drawn global attention to the Caribbean island and its culture. Yet few critics have examined reggae's social origins or fully accounted for its phenomenal rise as the music of disaffected youth. Today we're talking with Matthew Smith, professor of history at the University of West Indies in Mona, Jamaica. This year, Matt is working to situate reggae within the larger social dynamics of post-World War II Jamaica as the William C. and Ida Friday Fellow at the National Humanities Center. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So, in your project, you make the argument that the story of Jamaican music is also the story of Jamaica's national formation. Can you talk to our audience about how these stories intersect? Sure. Commercial music in Jamaica really starts off around the late 50s. And it's around that time that the political uh, trajectory towards Jamaican independence changes. Uh, Not to go too detailed about it, but the the Anglophone islands of the Caribbean had formed a federation in around 1958, and that federation begins to splinter. By 1962, Jamaica has independence. It goes on its own path to independence. Also interesting with that is during that period, 58 to 62, is when you see the development of the music that would become known as scam. And ska was the first major Jamaican popular music form to break through internationally. By 1964, there were ska records being sold in in the United States market. Ska performers were being booked in the UK. Uh, It was a major, major breakthrough for Jamaica. And because it, it sort of parallels so closely that moment of national independence in Jamaica, the Jamaican state began to embrace ska as something that could be marketed as part of a new identity for Jamaica. In fact, ska became called the national sound of Jamaica. That then connects to the development of another form of music in Jamaica in the uh, mid-1960s called Rocksteady. And Rocksteady had a very short life. By about 1968, Rocksteady was on the wane. And then from that comes reggae. But if one were to sort of map, uh, as I've been trying to do in this project, the political direction of Jamaica during that time, as well as the social direction of Jamaica, which is heavily influenced by uh, party um, rivalries between one leading party and the opposition party, and also a major part of the Jamaican story, which is migration. A lot of Jamaicans leaving the island in the period of the 1950s all the way up to the 1970s. You can also see the way in which that is affecting and changing and altering the music that is developing in Jamaica at that point in time. So by the time we get to 1968, reggae becomes um, the dominant music in Jamaica. It's fledgling, it's, it's early, uh, rock studies on the wane, uh, and then Jamaican artists are starting to perform more reggae music, which then w- would, of course, by the following decade, have a major international breakthrough with Bob Marley. So why Bob Marley? Why has he become sort of the... Uh, focal point of of reggae music and Jamaica music? I think a lot of it has to do with timing. I think when Bob Marley really sort of hit the big time, which is around 1975 as a solo act, uh, he he was doing records well before that. His first record was recorded around 62 or 63. 
Um, but what Bob Marley was singing was very much reflective of what many other artists in Jamaica were singing, which was also a commentary on where Jamaica was at, post-independence Jamaica in the 1960s. It was also a comment that because of certain political dynamics was framed uh, in very indirect language, lyrically. A lot of the artists had to do that. They couldn't be very pointed to one party or another. And that brought out a lot of creative skill in how they wrote their songs. And this is where Bob Marley's sort of genius as a songwriter, you know, really came out. Because he was able to write songs about the local conditions in Jamaica, but in language that was very universal. And so once he began to record those songs uh, on a major label, Island Records, there was something, it was not the, the sort of specific human experience of struggles for identity, struggles for against racism, struggles for uh, civil rights, all of those things which are very much embodied in the Jamaican experience after, uh, after independence became the sort of matter that Bob would use to write his songs and to craft his music, and it resonated and it carried. And it was at a time when uh, you begin to see the conservative turn uh, here in the United States. You begin to see... Uh, a sort of burgeoning youth rebellion of the 1970s that has a very different sort of complexion than it did before. A figure like Bob Marley sort of represented this kind of uh, rebel revolutionary um, image, but at the same time with songs that were incredibly melodic, danceable, and reflective. You've alluded already to parallels between what was going on in the United States uh, in the 60s and 70s and perhaps or late 50s as well, particularly with the U.S. Uh, civil rights movement. To what extent is there a dialogue here between what's going on socially and historically in the United States in terms of uh, the various resistances and revolutions of the time? How do they influence what's going on in Jamaica as seen through the music and vice versa? Are there effects from what's going on in Jamaica uh, on what's going on in the United States? That's a great question, and, and it's, a, it's a very important point to consider because there are tremendous parallels. In fact, the dialogue is long before this period that we're speaking of. Um, that dialogue between the United States and the Caribbean more broadly goes all the way back to the 18th century. But with music in particular, because of that point I mentioned with migration, you have a lot of Caribbean uh, people living in the United States going back to the early part of the 20th century and they have an impact on say the development of jazz here in the United States mm -hmm. and also uh, I would say the United Kingdom in England there are a lot of great Jamaican uh, jazz musicians that helped shape the, U the UK jazz scene but in the period of the 1960s the civil rights movement with that sort of championing of equality championing of a very important word at the time freedom that had so many key parallels to a country just coming out of uh, over two, over 300 years of colonial power with, with Great Britain, imperialism, 300 years of imperialism. And so the language of the civil rights movement reflected a lot of the language in Jamaica of uh, class struggle, of people who the majority of the population in Jamaica then was very much uh, very poor. Uh, and there was this sense that uh, decolonization had not transformed 
their livelihood in any measurable or significant way. And then the music becomes a sort of space through which that is expressed. So there is that, that mm. interesting parallel there in terms of the language, which is why when Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King, visited Jamaica in 1965 on an official visit, it was a huge celebration that turned out for him because not only were people championing what he was doing in the United States, but people were also found resonance in the words he was saying about freedom, rights, and equality in a country where people felt that some of that was denied them in, in spite of the fact that it was a majority black uh, country, or is. Mm -hmm. I would also add two more dimensions to it, Robert. Number one is that you had a, a very steady and regular sort of touring pattern of U.S. singers coming to Jamaica from the 1950s all the way down. So just about everyone who was a major singer, particularly African-American singers in the United States during that, that civil rights moment, also performed in Jamaica. From uh, Nina Simone, who came twice, uh, James Brown, Curtis Mayfield, Ray Charles, Duke Ellington, they all came and performed in Jamaica. And so that creates a very interesting dialogue uh, musically between the United States and Jamaica. Second point I'll mention is that one of the things I've been finding, one of the great things about being here at the Humanities Center is the time to actually get deeper into the project. And that a lot of this goes very early back, and I'm actually finding traces of that dialogue happening in commercial music uh, from before the period of the 1960s. One concrete example is the song Louie Louie, which is a a famous rock and roll song. In fact, it's the most covered rock and roll song in, in the whole canon of rock music. But did you know it was actually written from the perspective of a Jamaican sailor? No, I did not. Right. Uh -huh. If you listen to the music again, it's about a Jamaican sailor who's leaving to go back home to Jamaica. He can't wait to see the love of his life when he returns home after being at sea for a very long time. So that's interesting that Jamaica figures so heavily in this song. It also comes out, Louis Louis, the first recorded version, comes out not long after Harry Belafonte's famous Calypso album, which comes out in 1956. And that Calypso album was a sort of major way in which U.S. audiences were uh, connected to Caribbean music. So there's an interesting kind of dialogue that I'm actually trying to tease out more to understand the social dynamics on both sides of the Caribbean Sea. In the United States, in places where you had large populations of Caribbean uh, migrants, but also in the Caribbean itself, in Jamaica. What were they listening to? How was that music coming to them? And how did that music also influence the way in which they developed their own music forms? Let's talk for our audience a little bit more about your research process. Sure. You've, you've been doing a lot of archival research. Can you talk about what kind of archives uh, you've been looking at and what you've discovered that you didn't expect to discover? Well, the first thing I'd say that one of the most fun parts of a project like this is you get to listen to a lot of music, yeah. which is very, very uh -huh. uh, exciting. So I spend a lot of my time listening to music and making very careful notes on the music I'm listening to. Unfortunately, so much of the music that we have from Jamaica that was produced was without uh, correct dates on them. So you really don't have a lot to go with uh, in terms of getting what we call the metadata. When was it recorded? Who was the personnel on the recording? That sort of um, information. But listening to music and spending time reading a lot here about uh, other musicians and, and other musicians from outside of Jamaica and seeing at what point that they were recording who, what kinds of music they were doing, then listen to the Jamaica music, I'm actually able to start to pick up traces of where those influences begin. And from that, I've been able to sort of 
identify uh, which moments the music sort of crosses. The other thing, too, is that there have been very good uh, material, if one is patient enough, that you can get from the um, newspapers. Uh, the Jamaican newspapers published a hit parade beginning sometime around 1962. So you can actually find out when some songs were released just looking at the hit parade list and then listen to the music from the United States at the time and try and make some interesting connections that way. And the final interesting element I've been doing a lot of work with is just listening to the musicians themselves. Um, I've done interviews in Jamaica with a lot of musicians from that period, so I've been doing a lot of work transcribing some of those interviews, getting some of those stories, and piecing it together with more detailed look at Jamaica's political history. Sort of looking not just at the broad strokes of it, which is a bit more familiar, but just looking at the smaller, almost daily kinds of changes in the politics, which, of course, have some impact on how the culture is being shaped. Talk to us a little bit about what personally drove you to this project? I mean, what, what, what's the resonance of Jamaican music, and uh, particularly in, in the time period about what you're talking, roughly 1950 to 1980, and the social changes? And you know, so what resonates with you personally, and why did you get interested in this? I'm from Jamaica and grew up in Jamaica uh, just after the big wave of 1970s reggae and international acceptance of Jamaican music. It was always sort of part of who you are as a Jamaican. Reggae music is, is so deeply identified with your own sense of Jamaicanness. But then I wondered what had led to that, right? Why was it that it, reggae music was being sort of marketed and, and, and projected as the, you know, a major part of our cultural vibrancy of the island, but also a sort of export of the island? And that sort of was the big question for me as a, as a scholar. And so that sort of made me want to go back. And I often tell people that I'm at that interesting age where I grew up analog but learned digital. (laughs) (laughs) I still remember buying records and buying 45s and playing those. But at the same time, I was buying CDs. and, And it was just trying to figure out what my parents listened to. If I grew up listening to reggae, what were my parents listening to? Uh, what were people like my parents uh, listening to? Did they accept the music as being part of their identity, or did, did they accept something else? And those questions sort of took me deeper and deeper into understanding um, the history of, of the island, but more importantly for this project, just the history of the musicians and the way in which it really reflects so closely the development mm-hmm. of all of these broad elements of Jamaican society. How is this project a, a, a model or how do you hope it will be a model for exploring the social, political construction of music as well as music itself constructs social change, that kind of dialogue? I hope that if there's one word I could say is that I hope the, the, the project shows that music is connected. Uh-huh. That really is the key word for me because so much of how Jamaican music or any music develops is really based on connection. One of the challenges that I think has um, affected, uh, you know, there's some tremendous, you know, great literature on music and Jamaican music, but one of the things that sometimes uh, weakens some of the the, the general approaches is sort of the sense of showing how the music uh, became, you know, this sort of success story, right? I'm a lot more interested not so much in in the success story of, say, reggae or the success story of any form of Jamaican music or artist, but more in terms of the ways in which 
people's movements back and forth in these different locations in the United States, which we spoke of earlier, but also elsewhere in the Caribbean, really affects their musical sensibilities, introduces something to the dynamic of their development of music. One thing that I've been doing a lot of work on since um, I've been here at the Humanities Center is looking at the big band era in Jamaica, because that's really, I see, as part of the, big, the root of a lot of this, because a lot of those bands didn't record, but they were uh, major performers in the island. And looking at the musicians in the band and seeing where they played and where they, they went to. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that one of the biggest bands in Jamaica in the 1950s was called Eric Dean's Orchestra, and they did a six-month residency in Haiti in 1950. And when you look at the musicians who were in the band at that point in time, these were some of the musicians who would later uh, develop ska a decade on. So that's really interesting to me, you know, that experience of travel, that experience of exposure to other musics before you begin to claim what, what uh, the Jamaican government would later say is a national sound is so rich because those musicians in their lifetime, they're carrying those experiences and integrating it in what they're producing. Well, that's just great. What a, what a fascinating and immensely enjoyable project that you're, that you're working on. Thank you. So thank you so much, Matt. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.